Hi, everyone. So our first reading this afternoon is from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The second reading is from James, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. It's great to be with you. As I put this up, now this is actually a risky business. See that blood blister? That was from one of these bad boys this morning, as it nipped me, so. But I successfully did it. Well done, me. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Rowan. I'm the assistant minister here. Um, if I haven't met you, it'd be lovely to. Uh, I am going away straight after the service uh, tonight with my family, so um, maybe another time. <laughs> but I look forward to being back with you in two Sundays' time. Uh, we're thrilled to be getting away, um, and so thank you for all uh, jumping in next week and doing some various things for me. Um, I appreciate that. We're looking at the book of James, and even as we've started... Uh, to think about this new series, and even as uh, Jen's been leading and then Reb just then, some of those themes uh, that the book of James will draw upon come up frequently. Um, we sent out a church-wide email introducing the series uh, on Friday. Just so you know as well, if you aren't receiving emails and would like to receive them for communication, do uh, let me know. There's also contact cards up the back that you can write your details on and pop it in the box. That's a great way for us just to keep you updated with things. But in that email, Justin uh, sent out saying, um, relaying the story he began uh, this year about uh, a man who was a model church member, kind, servant-hearted, and present, but at work uh, he was a bully and known to be unkind. And so when people found out that he was going to church, they simply couldn't believe it. There was, a, there was a disconnect. He wasn't living a consistent life. This man's faith was not at work. And the question for this series is, well, how do we get out of such a cycle? How do we work to have an even more aligned faith? And that's what the book of James is about. It's about aligned living. Um, 
And as we, as we read it and as we hear this message, it, it reads not like any other New Testament book. Um, I was chatting with uh, Justin, the, the senior minister, about it, and, and he likens it to Old Testament prophecy. So in James 4, he says this, "'Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded.'" It's quite strong language. And the, the closest language that we get in the New Testament to it is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so as we read this letter, it will rub somewhat against our sensibilities a bit. Uh, it will call inconsistency out. That is the double-minded part. And it will call us to aligned living, to be consistent, to wisdom, and to wholeness and maturity. So it will make for some uncomfortable listening for us. I've been even challenged in, in my own preparation for this week. Um, and so we require us to have the humility to hear and to heed what James has to say to us. But if we do, what it will produce in us as individuals and as a community is, is something that's, that's truly wonderful. It's a wonderful picture, a picture of a faith that is, that is mature, of character that is rich and complete, and lives that are whole, both as individuals and as, as a community. And so as we sit here and, and we, we hear some of the uncomfortable teaching as it rubs us up the wrong way, let's have the humility to listen, but also too to, to know what it will produce in us. A faith that is mature and a deep and thick relationship with our God. Because living inconsistent lives or a failure to live aligned lives, it, it, it affects our witness as well, doesn't it? It gnaws apart what we say and what we do. The, the, the language of double-minded in this, in this letter is, is also the language of something similar to like two-faced. It's inconsistent. And so we will, if we are to seek to be a witness for Christ, both as individuals and as a community... Seek to live aligned lives. And, and James is calling us uh, to that, to be a not perfect but a distinct people. And so this letter affects us as a community and our witness to the world and our mission to the world as we proclaim Christ as well. So it relates to us in, in very significant ways. And our hope is that it will be a great challenge but ultimately an encouragement for us and that God through it will be at work in us to present us as, as mature, complete, and whole. Have the passage open uh, as we go along tonight, but just to set you a bit of context, just to introduce the letter to us. Uh, the author introduces himself to us, verse 1, James. There's some dispute about who James was. Was he the apostle or was he Jesus' brother? I think the evidence suggests that it was Jesus' brother, but it's striking, isn't it, in the introduction, he doesn't actually refer to his relationship to Jesus, but rather he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the brother of Jesus, but here he refers to himself as his servant, and he calls his brother his Lord. Now, if you read the Gospels, there's occasions where basically Jesus' family comes and tries to persuade Jesus to kind of not make such a scene and, and to, to kind of bring him into his sane mind and to take him away. And yet here he's writing and he says that he is Jesus' servant and Lord. There's something significant that has taken place. 
And that's the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection and the life that has, has changed him. And James goes on to be a pastor of a church in Jerusalem for some 30 years. In Acts 2 and 4, we see that he pastors a church mainly consisting of Jewish believers. And so he, he writes to a series of churches, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And so we, we can pick up that these are probably Christians of or many of which are of Jewish descent. And so as he, as he writes, as he's greeted, as we come into the letter, what we will see is that it's different from other New Testament letters, uh, particularly because what is, what is missing. And this has caused some confusion, because a good question for us to ask is, well, where is, where is the gospel in James? It doesn't mention Jesus' death or resurrection, justification by faith, those key doctrines. Paul, in his letters, tends to work from theology to, to practice. He tends to work of uh, a sense of, of articulating our basis of who we are in the Lord Jesus and then cause us to what we are to do in light of that, whereas James doesn't seem to do that. Rather, the, the finished work of G Jesus is assumed to James. It's not that it's absent from his theology, but it's, it's assumed. And so, as we read this letter... It's important for us to remember that we are those who have come near to God through the finished work of Jesus. That is the assumed theology of James. But then he calls us to live in a certain way. One writer says this, his work focuses on the details of Christian living rather than its basis. It focuses on the details of Christian living rather than its basis. And so when James calls us, and as we move through this series, to align our lives uh, to the Lord Jesus, he's calling us to align our lives to who we are now in Christ, saved and by his Spirit becoming more like Jesus. And it's just really important to mention as we, as we move through this, because there is a lot of imperatives in this letter, but it is based upon an assumed theology of the basis of Christ's finished work for us. But today we're looking at verses, particularly uh, 2 to 8, and he, he doesn't delay. It's a rapid-fire letter, and he addresses many topics. And this morning, evening, he jumps straight in, uh, in verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He, he jumps straight in with, with a key theme of the letter, trials. Now, there's specific trials that the, the recipients of this letter are facing. Some of those emerge later to do with um, the rich and, and the poor and, and suffering. But here he, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He's being deliberately general. And so what that means is Whenever you face trials of many kinds, there's a few assumptions taking place. An assumption is that we will face trials. That's part of our world that we live in. And when he says of various kinds, what he's doing is he's including those, those, uh, the, the audience to this letter more widely than maybe the specific nature of this letter to those who were, were facing certain trials. But this is a, this is a general uh, exhortation to consider it joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. So that includes us. I don't know where you're at today or this afternoon, but there will be many here 
who are facing hard things, struggles, things that make us feel disoriented, things that make us feel restless, things that if we were to mount another thing on top of it, we might feel like that we would topple over. Well, this is addressed to us. But he makes this kind of, you know, raw and audacious claim that in the midst of trials, you know, with those feelings that we have in the circumstances that we experience, we're to consider it a joy. Well, if we're going to understand what seems a reckless claim, we, we need to be persuaded that there is reason for joy in, in the midst of it. And I think that's uh, and a great encouragement about where he, he moves. Because without, without a reason to have joy in the midst of our circumstances and trials seems unrealistic at best, doesn't it? But, but worse than that, it can seem sadistic. Like, who can, who can do that? Who can have joy? Who can generate joy in the midst of our circumstances and sufferings? But James goes on to tell us why we can have joy. Firstly, he says, consider it pure joy... When, because you know, when you face trials, because you know that the testing of your faith, this is verse 3, produces perseverance. The first word there is consider. So he's saying consider. So it's not so much how you feel, but it's a perspective you have. Think. Not so much how you feel, but how you think. He's saying there is a way that you can even think about your trials that can, that can bring you joy. It requires us to think of our trials in light of, of a bigger picture. And that bigger picture is, is God's purposes. So he's calling us to consider, or, or the language of accountancy almost, to, 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 to count yourselves or count it pure joy when you suffer or face trials of many kinds. Now, he's not saying that we pretend that trials are fun. He's not saying that we have to just push through with a stiff upper lip. I think he's very realistic about the nature of trials and, and that the scriptures speak very clearly that trials are the result of evil and they're bad and they hurt and they can, can, can affect us in, in significant ways, but we are given a perspective here in verse 3 that our trials are producing something in us that can give us cause for great joy. What is that? Well, firstly, it's, it's perseverance. It's the realisation that through trials, God is doing something in us. See, trials put us into testing, and they help us to persevere. Trials require determination to keep going, and testing is the way in which God strengthens our faith. If you, if you picture a weightlifter... Um, snatching a heavy laden bar and rising it above their heads, legs shaking, and then their, their legs kind of snap into form, and the judge singles that it's a, success, a successful lift. Uh, this is all purely borrowed. <laughs> but, but strength and endless hours of testing is required to do that. And, and in the essence, faith is like a muscle in, in the human body in this sense. As it works out, as it grows stronger, it needs something to push up against. Muscle growth requires discomfort. Faith needs a pushback 
or, or trials for us to grow spiritually. But as we, as we hear this, it's important to remember that joy comes not from the pain, but the product. Joy comes not from the pain, but from its product. And what does testing produce? Well, perseverance. And if you look at verse 4, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. So James is drawing a connection here that our trials, though not good, difficult and hard, are God's means of, of strengthening us, testing us, so that we will persevere, so that we will be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. Mature, complete, or the language there is like wholeness, fully rounded, aligned, a person of, of deep character. Romans says something similar. In Romans 5 it says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And when we think about what our trials produce in us, it's a wonderful and compelling picture. Mature, complete, whole. That's a picture of our ultimate goal. Now that's our, our future goal because there will only be a sense in which when we are glorified we'll be completely mature, completely complete and, and not lacking anything. But it's also a picture of what we're becoming more fully in Christ. It's a picture of knowing Christ more fully and becoming more like him now. And so James is saying this can be true of our experience even in a, a partial way in this unperfected age. And just attach the trial for a second, but isn't, isn't that what we want? Don't we long to be people of character, to be a community that is mature, complete and whole. Well, James says that we can't get there without trials. Trials provide us with the testing and the opportunity to, to mature in our faith. But if you're anything like me, I think I, I would rather another route to get there. But the reality is ours is the same as our Saviour's. It's the cross, then resurrection. It's suffering, then glory. And for us, it's trials, then maturity. But what it produces in us can be reason for great joy. So trials become an opportunity to cling to the promises of God. But we remember that joy does not come from the pain itself, but from what it produces in us. And so I don't know where you're at this afternoon. I know some of your story, but some of you I don't know. I don't know what trials you're particularly facing. I don't know what you're feeling that makes you feel restless or disoriented, but that is a common human experience. And when we face trials, we, we hate it, don't we? And we, and we want that to stop. And, and that's not a wrong desire. We don't pretend that trials don't grieve us or hurt us. Sometimes they do, profoundly. But know that 
in the midst of our trials, they have purpose. Trials produce something in us. And that is why James says that we can consider it pure joy when we face trials of various kinds. One commentator says, the occasion of the trial is a matter of rejoicing because even in our darkest hour, God is still in control and his divine purposes will prevail. As I was preaching this sermon this morning, we had um, Ray Smith, who's uh, on staff with us, 83 years old, um, and after, the, after I preached, he got up to lead communion. And then he goes, I just want to add a word to Rowan's. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, what have I done? Um, but it was this delightful moment where he, he was speaking about uh, this week he uh, met one of our parishioners who died four hours later in hospital, met and prayed with her. And he just, he says, you know, I'm, he says, I'm 83. And in, in a ray kind of way, he goes, I've got five years left, maybe, kind of thing. Um, and he says, you know, persevering through trials is still something that I struggle with. But he says, you know, that there was a beautiful moment this week that as he was praying with this lady, even though her, her body was giving away through suffering and trials, and he says, you know, when you're older, you, you face suffering and trials, you feel it in your body. But yet there was this wonderful picture that inwardly she was more whole, complete, alive and mature than anything we could imagine. It was this very sweet moment that he shared. And if we have the perspective that in our trials, even though they're painful, God is producing something in us, that he's giving us great reason to rejoice. That doesn't make it easy, but there's cause for joy. It's an opportunity to see the most valuable thing, a faith that is mature, complete, and whole. But it is hard, and it doesn't necessarily come fast. In my circumstances, when I, when I face trials of various kinds, I can tend to be absorbed by it completely. I know my own heart. I detach trials from, from God's purposes. I can, can blame him and spiral into to self-pity. I can become blind to the need of others. But I can see that in the past, God has used trials to produce in me perseverance and hopefully maturity and growth. I can see in those moments where I've failed to see his purposes behind it, I've robbed myself of joy. So James tells us that trials give us an opportunity to grow, but it is hard. And we may not know what to do. And for that kind of growth and that joy, we need wisdom and where do we get that from? Well, thankfully, that is what God promises us in that second point, the wisdom needed, verses 5 to 8. Let me read them. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. The connection between these two sections seems a bit odd, but if we are to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials, we need wisdom to be able to see things correctly 
and God provides us with that wisdom. And I think that is the connection between these two verses. But when it speaks about wisdom, it's, it's different from speaking about intelligence. Wisdom in, in the Bible is, is about living God's way in God's world. It's different from, from raw intelligence. Uh, there's an American writer, Walker Percy, well, a late American writer, uh, Walker Percy, and he, he gets this when he writes, you can get all A's and still flunk life. You can get all A's and still flunk life. It's not just mere intelligence. To be wise is to know how to live in accordance with God's will in the many and varied circumstances of our life. That's wisdom, living God's way in God's world. And so considering trials pure joy is not necessarily an instinct that would just kick in. We need God's wisdom to be able to do it. And the wonderful thing is that God promises that he will give it to us. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. God is the dispenser, the source and dispenser of, of wisdom. He gives generously. So we should ask of him when we don't know what to do, when we're feeling disoriented, when we're, when we're overwhelmed by our circumstances. Our impulse should be to ask God for wisdom in those moments. And he gives generously. See, the problem is often myself and, and I think we, we, when our circumstances and trials face us, we, we tend to think of God being tight-fisted, not as a generous God who will give us the wisdom we need and help to, to persevere. But God is not stingy when it comes to, to giving wisdom. In fact, he welcomes us. And, and James elaborates on um, the generous God and, and what he is like. He, he is the God who, who gives generously. He gives to all. Um, it's not like a membership scheme where you've got to earn up the right in order to receive the blessing. I've only been in business class once um, and you know, I was welcome to the club. I'd never felt imposter syndrome more in my life. Uh, but I did take the Chardonnay and watch the plebs get down the back of the plane, out of my sight. Uh, so, no, I didn't. But it was, uh, it was this thing where it was a privilege that was given to those who had, who had earned it. But God is not like that. He gives to all. It's not a membership scheme. And he gives without finding fault. It's not like we have to, to clean our lives up in order to receive wisdom from God to help us. We come to him in our mess, in our, in our restlessness, in our, in our circumstances, and he loves to give us generously his wisdom so that we can consider it pure joy in the midst of our trials. Do you see what James is doing here? He's reminding us almost of what we already know, and, and this is key. As we approach God in times of distress and confusion, we need to remind ourselves of who this God is and how he has shown himself to be to us. And we see that, that most marvelously in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're feeling disoriented, remember the truths you first discovered when you, you believed the gospel for the first time. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. That he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. His generosity doesn't dry up the moment we become a Christian. It continues to flow into our lives. 
So we ask God for wisdom to consider our trials pure joy, to have the perspective to see what they are producing in us and to want that. But James does seem to qualify that in in verses 6 to 8. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Then he goes on to say, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. And as we read that, we can sometimes think that we, that this might be, this might be us. You know, we might think that we somehow need to work up our own um, state of absolute belief before we can ask God for wisdom and he'll give generously to us. But I don't think that's the person he's talking about here. The person who, who doubts is described as, as double-minded. Double-minded is, is that language of, of two-faced. It, it's that, that sense of two, you know, two feet in, in different places. There's a, uh, when we were in, um, we went on a holiday in, in, when we were in England to, to Cambridge, and they have, uh, on the River Cam, they have punts, which are kind of flat, they're wooden boats with flat bottoms, and you push them around with a stick. It is fun. Um, but as you, as you take off, we, we had a, a guide, because, you know, I couldn't, handle these myself, but then you get those brave folk that would try to, you know, get the punt and do it themselves, and you see them, and they take the first step onto the punt, and basically it just kind of takes off, and so they kind of <laughs> go into this kind of massive splits, and it's, it's, it's that idea of being double-minded in the sense that you're, you're hedging your bets, you're, you're kind of putting your confidence in, in God and the Scriptures, but you're kind of keeping one foot just safe in, in, in wisdom of the world or in, in myself or in this, that and the other. That's the sense of, of double-minded here. It's not someone who has questions and doubts and struggles in the midst of circumstances. That's a person to whom God gives generously. So we're not, we need not fear necessarily that this is speaking about us. I think what we need to hear here is that God is a God who loves to give generously. We do need to heed the warning not to be double-minded but I don't think it's the kinds of, of doubts that may occur to us or the questions in the midst of the trouble and the pain that we experience. Rather, it's a person with one eye over their shoulder to see if there is something better. Well, as we close, what are you, what are you facing this week? I'm connecting the dots between Sunday and Monday. What moments this week will emerge or the circumstances which will lead you down a path to perhaps be absorbed in your circumstances or perhaps to be restless and disoriented? How can we have this pure joy that is, is talked about here? How can, how can that lead to uh, an understanding and a perspective that we know that this is producing something in us? You know, when we experience that, that pain again, be it physical pain or an emotional pain, when we feel alone, when, when we wake up in the morning and, and we, we feel the monotony of day by day or the, the fear of um, the, the tasks that are ahead of us and we might feel anxious or it might even be the memory sparked, regret or hurt or loss or whatever the circumstances and trials that you are facing, 
How does this speak to that? What we have heard today is countercultural. But what we have heard is that trials are producing something in us, and that something is really compelling. We can rejoice in our trials because God is producing through them a faith in us as individuals, but as a community as well. Its trajectory is maturity, completeness, and wholeness. Through God, I mean through trials, God is doing something to us, for us, in us, and through us. And it's a wonderful, compelling picture, but we need wisdom in order to, to consider things these way. So let us go to God and ask for it. Why? Because he is the source and giver of wisdom. James, in verse 17 of chapter 1, has this lovely verse. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The God that we approach in the midst of our trials is the God who does not change, and he is toward us as he is in Christ. He's open to us, he welcomes and receives us through the finished work of the Lord Jesus, and he is the dispenser and source of wisdom so that we, in the midst of our trials, can have pure joy knowing what it's producing in us. It'll be hard, but it's a great promise that we need to hang on to. So let's champion each other to that. In the midst of trials, let's be a community that first is a listening ear, that also meets one another with, with practical needs and care, but also prayers and words of encouragement, of comfort and hope. Jen's going to come and pray for us.